Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 238 for November the 10th, 2021. I am Wes Fryer, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we had a nice little rainstorm come through tonight. A little bit of hail kept me off of my smoker for one night, but, you know, I, I was able to withstand the withdrawal. So, uh, but I'm joined as always from the, the EdTech Yoda of the North, <laughs> Jason Neifer, with Montana flag and flannel shirt to boot. So uh, you're looking yep. like the authentic, the authentic, uh, Montana native there. I am. Yep. That's totally true. Uh, I am coming to you from Missoula, Montana, where our first flakes of snow dropped tonight. So um, it's only a light snow and I would sure it's supposed to snow tomorrow. And then I'm sure it'll melt because it's supposed to be in the fifties in the next week or so. But um, you know, that's the time of the season. So it was really nice to uh, listen to the snowfall, which it has a very distinct sound. If you've never uh, heard snow before, um, but it's a, a beautiful time of year to be in, in Western Montana. And so I'll ask you a question that my uh, sixth graders and advisory asked. Uh, in the Nifer home, is it considered to be sacrilegious to play Christmas music, have the tree up, you know, pre-Thanksgiving, or what? how do you fall on that? We're pretty minimalist on that front. We do have a small tree. It goes up the second or third week of, of December and comes down around the 1st. Um, but I think I think you're safe past November. I don't want to hear it after October 31st. I certainly don't want to hear it in June or July. So I'm okay with the broader culture, but I think waiting until after Thanksgiving is the way to go. And then will the fest does the Festivus celebration require <laughs> any preparation, musical, you know, entertainment, anything like that? Yes, I, I do celebrate Christmas. I also celebrate Festivus, which is the uh, holiday that was made popular by. Oh, it's a 22, 23 year old, no, 24 year old episode of Seinfeld. And it's about, uh, uh, it's kind of the anti holiday. And, uh, there's a bunch of traditions that go along with it, putting up a metal pole instead of a tree, having some kind of festivist dinner. And then you get to also explain all the ways people disappoint you through the year. So it's a pretty delightful, joyous time to celebrate. So. All right. Well, in addition to this, to, you know, introducing people to, you know, new traditions, perhaps for the, that'll change their lives forever, like Festivus, what are we going to do tonight? Jason? Well, um, we like to take a look at the technology headlines and kind of shoot them through the education prism to see if we can, you know, help find some answers to questions uh, 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 as we kind of play through uh, what we're calling the tech correction. And tonight we've got Apple, we've got social media articles, um, which apparently I copied some from last week. Uh, uh, Microsoft, uh, Microsoft article. It's actually a topic that we had last week and have an updated article. Uh, the tech correction, Google connectivity, some media literacy news, uh, security. Uh, we have massive numbers of, of topics tonight. Home IoT. And of course, um, the potent potables category of the tech situation room. It's miscellaneous. And then we'll end with our geeks of the week. So Wes, what would you like to start with this week? Well, I think I put in probably four topics that could have all been bunched under miscellaneous. But <laughs> let's go to that miscellaneous category. I had never heard of this before. So this is a USA Today article uh, from November 9th. And I actually had – it was behind the paywall, and but Yahoo News has it for free, the exact same article. Millions of college students use Chegg, which professors say enables cheating and possibly blackmail. Um, and I've got a link there to the source tweet. <clears throat> so there's a professor – uh, down in Texas, who posted the uh, Juan Gutierrez, and he posted, Dear colleagues in higher ed, please retweet ASAP. There may be young victims of a vile scam. A student was blackmailed after using Chegg to cheat in a homework. The message by a Chegg tutor was, quote, pay or I will ruin your test scores. Please warn your students, Chegg. So USA Today covered this, and I had not heard of Chegg. <laughs> My 12th, you know, 12th grade daughter's familiar with it along with a lot of other, you know, different websites. And <clears throat> apparently this um, uh, professor was, was contacted by, and this was the, the, this was an extortion threat. So the student had not paid, had received this threat. And then the professor was contacted um, and found out about the extortion, you know, when they talked to the student. So <laughs> 
if you're going to use a website like this, maybe you don't use your own first and last name and maybe you don't use your main email address. Uh, and of course, you know, there is a definite line between, out, you know, out and out cheating and paying someone else to do your work, to write your essay, you know, and then using the web as a resource to, you know, get information and, and help with your homework. Um, but it sounds like Chegg may just be an out and out, hey, pay us and we will do your work for you. Um, but hey, if you don't pay us, we may, you know, resort to extortion. Now, this is possibly an outlier thing that other folks haven't, you know, experienced. But I say kudos to the professor, um, in this case, Juan B. Gutierrez. Uh, the fact, you know, he's on Twitter with 755 followers. He's a professor at UT San Antonio. Uh, and I think it's freaking fantastic that he went public with this. Uh, he was able to share this on Twitter. Again, maybe this is an outlier thing and it's not happening, but I didn't know about Chegg. I think it's a great teachable moment that you know, not only university professors, but also high school teachers can use to talk about this. So are you familiar with Chegg, Jason? And is this anything that you all, I'm a guess at the Digital Academy, you all in, have encountered this and probably talk about this a bit. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, the name is familiar to me and the kind of overall nature of the site is familiar to me. And the the, the one thing I would say is that, um uh, well, these sites have grown dramatically in popularity in the last five years, and it's always been kind of a problem. Like, for example, if you ever, um, uh, if you're using any prefab curriculum materials in your classroom right now, and you haven't went to look for specific phrasing in something like a worksheet or perhaps a lesson, whether it's digital or in paper, you could probably find either the actual answer key, the one that comes from the company, or you can always uh, uh, find a site where kids are sharing papers for academic purposes, so-called. But it's really a it's it, it's really intended or its intended audience. I think is less academic help and more um, you know sharing for to enable academic dishonesty. And of course, there's an argument to be made that you know better assessments. Um, uh, would involve things that, that you can't Google, right? That's a 21st century scale. And I'm not entirely sure I, I, I agree with that broader notion because I do think that there is absolutely a need to have core knowledge to be able to unlock higher levels of learning that I think it's really problematic. And I think it's, it's problematic from a, um, uh, from a, uh, a learning um, a psychology standpoint to, to assume that you can engage in higher level thinking if you don't have the lower levels of thinking down so that you can do more on recall and, and, and less on research, especially if you don't even have enough background research, uh, background knowledge to know about that research. But I couldn't agree that awareness is really critical here. And it sounds like if, and I was kind of reading the article while you were talking, it does sound like that they use a lot of contractors uh, in, in their their business, which means that, you know, it, these are these employees can't be as vetted uh, as someone that's hiring full time or part time employees. Right. But that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's it shows the dangers of social media if you're not careful and you have to be because it is kind of a social media. Right. And it, it's yes, it's a paid service, but just being very thoughtful when and where you engage is, is I think, a very important lesson for classrooms. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, where would you like to go to next, sir? Sure. Well, um, uh, I, there was one article from last week I want to talk about with Apple, and it kind of makes a broad point in, in education, in, in, in my opinion. So I want to talk about it. Fast Company reported that uh, um, the best uh, iPad Note app, which uh, is an app called Notability, and I actually went and looked when I read this article. Um, I'm, I'm just back to the iOS platform after some years away. So I actually own this app. I own the premium version of this app. So this applies a little less to me. But uh, there's, there's this Notability app that uh, it was, it's not a cheap app. I think it cost $10 in the App Store. Um, so you'd buy this app, and it's a wonderful note-taking app. And I was reminded of that when I re-downloaded it, that it was uh, by far the easiest note-taking experience I've had on any tablet computer. But uh, there had been some controversy about this because uh, um, instead of now just being able to buy the app for $10, then you can instead uh, download the app for free, 
but only have basic features turned on and the so-called freemium model, which is where when you want to do things like save to the cloud, for example, you need to pay uh, a, a regular fee. Usually it's a yearly fee uh, to be able to do that. And uh, uh, longtime users were angry because they felt like they paid their $10. They deserved to get the app forever. Um, now there was some back and forth because that actually violates uh, the app store policy that when you are, when you move models, what it effectively does is, is violates the rights of people that purchased it. So uh, from, from the standpoint of the user guide for Apple. So they ended up uh, uh, giving, it was initially a year, then it was a lifetime of premium service, just no new updates to, to, to with new features. But the point I want to make here is that it's not even really about education, uh, the app, because the app will still be free for school installation. So if you have the formal way of installing, by installing apps on your iPads, it doesn't matter. Um, you'll be able to have access to the premium version. But I think they're part of the reckoning that I think is going on right now as part of the broader tech correction is this notation that the free web, free apps, free services just don't have a forever model for us. And, um, you know, you can't, uh, you'll pay $10 for an app and then expect an app developer to basically update it for life, right? Like that just makes no sense. You have to continue to uh, uh, compensate those that are engaging in your services. And, um, you know, we've talked about the impact of journalism. We've talked about uh, how free has really created a big problem with local news. I think you're going to start seeing seeing this happen more in the app economy as well. And I just want people to be thoughtful about that, you know, the free web isn't going to be here forever and tool sets need to be more expensive plan for this in your budgeting, because at some point you may need to invest, uh, you know, a notably more amount of money in licensing of software. And if we do go in this direction, I think it's to make a better web um, and, a, and a better Internet. And again, it's a great reason to be connected. Those of you listening to the podcast hopefully have value in the ways that Jason and I filter news articles and share them as well as other kinds of tech tools. Um, you know, we, we can't, we can't buy everything for our individually ourselves or, or for our schools. So, you know, what's worth paying for, but there are definitely things that are worth paying for. And yep. it's interesting. The article talks about how they were discussing building this community of shared documents and wanting to grow that. But then at the bottom, you know, they talk about how, you know, you can't just pay $10 and expect to have this forever. So I think that it also, you know, fits into models in terms of, of growth and companies and what they need to do. And, you know, they basically everyone would love to be Facebook, right? Would love to be this huge company that has massive network effects and is gigantic. I mean, that's probably not true. Everybody doesn't want to be, have Facebook, but companies want to grow and they want to expand their user base. So, um, you know, it's interesting too how we kind of move and evolve. I was a huge Evernote fan back in the day, you know, mm -hmm. putting all of my stuff into Evernote. And then I think because of Google Drive, uh, you know, providing free backups. And then I don't know, I on my iOS, I I've, I use the notes app all the time. I'm, I'm just putting stuff in all the time. I, I compose tweets where, you know, I want to use the because <clears throat> you can't do this with your voice at this point yet. Maybe somebody will write a program to do this, but to be able to say, hey, I'm listening to this and then you get their Twitter handles and and whatever. So anyway, I have just kind of migrated away from paid note taking apps. But as you mentioned that I went into the app store. Sure enough, I had bought Notability back in the day. And, um, you know, it's. It's an interesting thing with contracts, and we've seen this with the Epic and Apple, you know, dispute in terms of what they're allowed to do and 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 how they have to, you know, remain true to contracts and things like that. Um, so, explain everything is another app that has been, in some cases, difficult to kind of track, like what which version of the app does what, and what do I need to get now, and you know, what if we bought for school and then these, these kind of things. So I, uh, we, unfortunately we only did a year of a pilot on one grade level with the iPad. Um, and we really didn't do much at all in terms of, uh, note taking and, and stylus use and, um, and things like that. So I hope because now I'm in the Chrome, yeah, for the, for this year, uh, who knows what'll happen next year. Uh, but in the Chrome ecosystem, I really would love to know more about great note-taking 
you know, applications. We tried that cursive app that we had talked mm -hmm. about on the show, but then there's this weird error and my kids couldn't get back to their stuff and they lost things and Ugh, our IT department didn't figure it out. And we, so we just ditched it. And then we've gone with uh, the one, I think I told you about squid. Uh, but if you power wash, unfortunately it doesn't automatically back up to the cloud to, to drive. So anyway, I had kids, you know, lose stuff there as well. And, part of the learning curve is, is, you know, okay, before we power wash, what do you need to make sure, you know, we have all of and trying to, to back that stuff up. But anyway, I think that notability, I mean, it's one of these apps that I've definitely have seen on so many lists in their schools that, you know, use the iPad. And that's one of the apps that they pay for to license to get for everybody. And, uh, you know, as a, a, a student um, being able to record, and of course you, probably should get permission for that uh, but you can just record the lecture and then it's all synchronized to your notes so you can tap on your notes and hear the exact part of the lecture I mean think about being able to do that when you were in you know undergraduate graduate school that that's really pretty phenomenally powerful like that's in a transformative way a much bigger deal than just hey I can you know, use all these different brushes and, and colors and, and, you know, make, make cool looking notes. Um, so I, I think that I am happy that notability is continuing to iterate, evolve and survive, you know, and they're yeah. not going away. And I think that's a, it's a core, it's a core thing that we need to be spending more time on at all levels in terms of note taking. We do a little bit of it with, with sketch noting, um, so if anybody out there is familiar with more web-based tools along the lines of Cursive, which that was supposed to be a Chrome OS only web app, which is kind of weird. You think it'd run on any, any uh, web browser, but those kind of things are, are of high interest. And maybe, I mean, Notability seems to just be happy to stay in the iOS world, but I'd love to see them, you know, be in, be in the Chrome world and on the web as well. But of course the issue is going to be, how do they make their money and what's that yep. model look like? So, yep, absolutely. Well, and, and my broader point too, I also agree the, I'm glad that they're shifting so they can continue to make a, a high quality product. And uh, the bottom line is, is that um, someone's got to make money and it's either off of your payment directly or it's off your payment through your privacy and advertising. Those are your two choices. Okay. Uh, where to next, sir? I will sneeze first. All right, but but mute my microphone. Uh, all right. Uh, well, let's go to social media. Um, this is a pretty interesting article. So uh, again, paywall, New York Times, but this is from yesterday on November 9th. And the article is, when Kilauea erupted, <laughs> sorry about my sneeze, I couldn't mute there. When Kilauea erupted, a new volcanic playbook was written. Uh, living as you do nearer to the Pacific Northwest, Jason, um, you know, you're, you're closer to volcano country than uh, I am. Um, in 2018, and I think the, I think Kilauea, it says in an article, I mean, it had been erupting since like 1983 or something. Yeah. Uh, since 1983, it had been erupting, but then in the summer of 2018, this, you know, huge eruption, um, happened and the science, you know, scientists responded and, and the article is not only about what the scientists and disaster and emergency preparedness and first responders and everybody in Hawaii did to protect lives because nobody lost their life in the, in the whole thing, but also what folks are doing around Seattle around, around Mount Rainier and, you know, other mountains of the Cascades and California uh, to prepare for the very real possibility of having an eruption. And what they found in Hawaii was before this, they weren't really utilizing social media a ton, and there were folks that were suspicious and not sure, but they found it was freaking awesome, and it really allowed them to especially address disinformation and rumors and things that were you know, going around and have official sources that could speak into that, um, and it's just a great example of how irrelevant and important social media is, and I still think, we all have a limited frame, but I still think that tapping into social media and using it and, and even using it as teachers, depending upon where you are. Um, but, but talking about with students in a lot of places, I think I know in some places it's still kind of taboo and it's not part of the curriculum and it's not something that we recognize, Hey, this is mainstream and important. So, you know, if you're going to go work for USGS or for, you know, a, a, a city or, 
a national forest or something, you know, this whole incident showed how important social media is and how critical those teams are. Uh, and, and it's, you know, being integrated more into the planning and the preparation. The other thing that's interesting about this article is it talks about how easy it is to burn out and just that even in the drills and the practice and things like that, they're, you know, it's, you know, we hope that these kind of things aren't going to happen again, but hello, we live on a, you know, a fiery planet and, 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 you know, we, the ring of fire is real, right? And so things are going to happen with, with earthquakes and, and volcanoes and other kinds of natural disasters. But I think there's something to be said here about the relevancy of social media and the importance that we need to be placing on it in education and not just kind of pretending like, oh, well, that's just something the kids do. You know, let's get back to reading Shakespeare. I, I right. don't think we're serving kids well if that's the attitude that we have about our curriculum. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, the other piece of this that's also critical to understand is that uh, media literacy in, in 2021, and I'm talking about things like journalistic literacy, uh, uh, community communication literacy, I mean, that is is really broadcast via social media now, right? Like, obviously, traditional sources, I still think we should support both financially and with our readership. But the bottom line is that uh, the way people engage with that today is still via social media. If I was just telling my wife this earlier tonight, the most valuable list I go to to read the news now is I have a uh, a Twitter list of Montana journalists that I call it my Montana news feed. And um, it's a lot of informal chit chat during the day, oftentimes between the different journalists, which I think is actually both very fascinating and, and, and also very useful. But I also get a sense of what they're reading because they're, they're tweeting that out. And that context is a value add to the news. I still wish that there were more nuanced ways I could help finance that other than my advertising dollar, right? Um, and I do now subscribe to both uh, uh, national and, and Montana-based publications. I give money to the nonprofit publications in my state um, because I value their work as well. Um, but, you know, I think being media savvy in 2021 means being social media savvy because that's where really a lot of this is centered now. And I just dropped a link into our chat and we'll put it into the show notes of that Twitter list by Jason. So it currently has 106 members. Those are the channels that, that are included. And there were 92 followers, and now there's 93 because I just followed it. Um, interestingly, I think Twitter lists are probably not as well utilized as yeah. a tool for, for filtering the Internet. And one of the things I think is great about it is I don't think that the feed, when you look at a list, I think it's purely chronological. I don't think that Agreed. you're seeing the same kind of algorithmic manipulation that you do when you just click on the home button. Um, like, so when you go to somebody's page, it, it's, you know, part of this is just the visibility and the lack of it that Twitter provides. <clears throat> you see tweets, tweets and replies, media and likes. You don't see a link right away for lists. So in order to get to this, I clicked on Jason's likes. And so that's just his you know, tech savvy teach uh, ID uh, slash likes. And I replaced the word likes with lists. And then I can see all of his publicly shared lists, click on those and, you know, go ahead and subscribe to them or whatever. So great little media literacy, digital literacy, mini lesson there. And I completely agree uh, using those sometimes in Twitter, but a lot of times in Flipboard, it's one of the main ways that I consume the web. And there's going to be other tools that allow you to do this. But pretty much to your point, if you're a journalist today, you're on Twitter. I mean, you you have to be. And that's not to say that everything that somebody tweets needs to be mainstream news. We kind of live through four years of that. But um, it, and I mean, there that article we talked about last week that's under that's under the social media um list uh, today it's the how to fix social social media wall street journal article you know one of the best points in there um by uh let's see here comes everybody clay shirky you know mm -hmm. is that when things move so quickly you know the virality and also the the lack of fact checking there, there's a lot of issues that happen with with speed but i don't think twitter is going to go away and i I don't think the need for us to filter our feeds is going to is going to go away either. So, yeah, I absolutely love Twitter lists. And I think that 
again, talking about something that's transformative, you being able to have that visibility into some of the banter and conversation between journalists during the week. I mean, you wouldn't, you don't get that with, with email. You're not going to be seeing that. And I've experienced this for a long time as an educator, um, whatever, since the web 2.0 began in the mid two thousands, you know, the visibility that you have into conversations and the ways in which you can participate either as, you know, an observer or an active interact, you know, an interactive participant. It is just phenomenal. And my last thought on this is we had a, a great parent university this last week. I think that was my geek of the week last week about uh, social media influencers. And we specifically talked a lot about TikTok and YouTube. Sometimes I hear adults simply rail against social media as if the entire thing is complete trash, you know, and that anybody who would want to have an account there is just, you know, destroying their mind and their life. And that is absolutely not the case. There are so many great utilizations of social media. There's, there's both the good and the bad, but Twitter lists I think are probably underutilized. And I would highly recommend if any of you listening have not explored those Twitter lists, started to follow lists that other people like, like, like Jason and I do as well, uh, create, it's a great way to, um, be able to channel your interest and, you know, find folks that you trust and, and let that be part of your, your media landscape and your radar screen of what you're looking at, listening to and consuming. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, I think that's everything on that. Because we talked about the meta stuff last week, right? You know, I put in a couple new ones um, because, uh, yeah, the, the, the ones about Facebook betting its future um, and then the pivot for survival, uh, I'll just I'll mention those quickly. So NPR on, on November 8th has a great article called Facebook Bets Its Future on the Metaverse. And as we did talk about this because the announcement had come, you know, that Facebook was changing its name. Um, but this NPR article, which I guess if you listen to it is about 10 minutes long, is a really good explanation of, you know, how, how this is a big, big deal for Facebook. You know, they, they could face, you know, splitting off of Instagram, but, you know, they've got a lot of users right now. They've got a lot of eyeballs, but long term, you know, young people are not on their platform and that doesn't bode well for the future. And so the amount of investment that Facebook is having, and this is really kind of the ready player one future. Um, but I think what that article says, it may be this, the, the TechCrunch article, um, which is that Facebook's meta existential pivot for survival. Um, both of these articles are right along the same lines. Um, there's a point really well made by one of these journalists that, you know, we shouldn't have a single company create the metaverse. We don't want, I mean, especially with the track record that Facebook has, we don't want them deciding the future of the internet. And so what Zuckerberg and his team are really betting, and this is where it's not just a, oh, let's change our name to distract people from what's happening in Congress. This is a lot more than that. This is really a bet of the future. And if you have not seen the movie Ready Player One, and you haven't read the book, <laughs> these are great. It's really a fantastic, the book is, of course, as it always is, much better than the movie, um, but it's a nice peek into the future and this kind of world where it's already present. We already see, like with Roblox, I have so many of my kids in Roblox, and they can do all kinds of things together and hang out and even create their own experiences there. And so this is what Zuckerberg is talking about and a few weeks ago on the Geek of the Week, when I talked about a new Zoom-like video conferencing experience, I mean, this is the future they're envisioning is that workers are going to be able to have headsets like the Oculus you know, VR headset, and we're going to meet, and I'm going to see Jason, and he's going to see me, and if we want to look like ourselves, we can, but there's just going to be a whole other level of immersive reality that we're going to be able to be in and it's going to affect business and it's definitely already affecting entertainment. And that's what these articles say as well is that he's being smart, catering to developers, catering to gamers and those folks who are going to pay the extra dollar to, you know, have this high end gear. But just the fact that in the last couple of years, you don't have to have a PC. Now the Oculus two is completely self-contained 
Um, I've only played with it a few times when a colleague brought his headset up to school. And then I've had kids last year, a couple different students bring them and we let students have an experience. But it's it is definitely a step into the future. And the fact that Facebook has such a war chest of money and one of those graphs that we've talked about in the last few weeks, comparing the size of these companies and how huge Facebook is, they just have such a huge war chest um, that, I mean, this is obviously a risky bet, but I think it's a pretty good bet and it's going to be important. I think that as the tech correction moves forward and hopefully regulators well, this is just be my opinion, but I think I think regulation has a role to play in all of this, and hopefully it's constructive and not destructive. I definitely don't think that Facebook should control the entire metaverse and yeah. you know set those standards. And in fact, if you read Red Player One or, or watch the movie, there's this I don't remember what they're called, but there's this nefarious company, right, that's trying to do that, and that's what the whole movie is about is sort of this fight to prevent them from, from taking it over. So I don't, who else is going to help invent the metaverse? Is it going to be Google or I guess Apple's going to come out with, with VR stuff. Everyone's playing with AR VR stuff and, and like the killer, you know, piece of hardware hasn't arrived yet. Google glasses, you know, created a splash, but they were kind of a novelty that then sort of went away. So. Right. Yeah. And they probably would be a much better tool now, but it just, you know, it, it never seemed to get past step one. Yeah. And it also is all tied to developers, right? That's something that, you know, Apple tends to really focus on is catering to their developer, you know, um, base and having their developer conference. And it's one of the things that any kind of platform has to really pay attention to because you're not going to have capacity internally to create all the apps and drive all the, you know, demand and utilization that you want to have. You need to bring this developer community on board as well. So it's something that a lot of folks are watching. I don't know if anybody else is investing to the level that Facebook is. It'll also be interesting to see what China does, right? Uh, Baidu and these other companies and, you know, what kinds of experiences. But because of the freedom that's involved there, anyway, it probably is going to be, you know, U.S. companies, Silicon Valley companies that are going to lead the way. But this is an example of, of peering into the future. And the future is, you know, already here. It's just not evenly distributed, that lovely quotation. I think the conversation about meta definitely you know, is a representation of that. Certainly so. All right. One more social media thing. Uh, YouTube. This is today. <laughs> uh, release an update to YouTube's dislike count. <clears throat> There's some articles about this, but I just put a tweet that's directly from team YouTube um, into the show notes and watch the video. Uh, three minute video. So nice, nice and short. Uh, what it says is that, you know, they've done research into the, impact of the dislike um, button is that, you know, there are these coordinated attacks that different groups are doing, especially on smaller YouTube creators, but trying to basically use it like a game to see how hot they can get that dislike count. And so they did about this and they did some pilot studies and they found that it really wasn't that big of a deal in terms of people being matched up with videos they wanted to watch to, just hide the, the number of thumbs down. So the thumbs down button is going to continue to be available on YouTube videos, but only the channel owner or those who are granted access to see behind the scenes on the channel are going to see the actual number. You'll see the number of likes and you'll be able to click the, the, the dislike button, but you won't be able to see the, um, the numbers that it has. And so they, they found that that reduces you know, the instances of these coordinated attacks to try to, you know, make the, make the dislike numbers go, go through the ceiling for, for, you know, certain videos and certain creators. So I say kudos to YouTube for responding in this way. Um, and this is probably an example of the kind of thing that you're not going to see regulation on. We're going to need platforms to recognize harmful effects and impacts and make adjustments. And it appears that YouTube is doing that in this case. Had you heard of those kind of attacks before, Jason? Or I've uh, not. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. To me. So yeah. yeah, it's definitely a good call. I would have said not before hearing those details, but I think that's a good thing to go in that direction. All right. Where to now? Uh, let's talk about some Google stuff, and I, I don't think we talked about this, so I, I guess um, I this is an opportunity to do it now. Uh, Google is now 
moving towards requiring two-step or two-factor authentication or two uh, or two FA. It's sometimes called um, on on more accounts, and apparently they are looking to expand it to the point to where it's turned on for everyone. And I, I have really two minds of this. The security-minded person of me says, yeah, that's a good direction to go into because there's just so much email hacking that's going on and account hacking that's going on that this is a very sensible, not perfect, but sensible direction to go into because I think it would make a big difference. Part of me also, especially since I am the tech support for my family, <laughs> I like to call it family IT guy. And additionally, hold on one sec. I caught your cough over the internet tonight, Wes, but, um, uh, uh, I'm family IT guy and, and, and I provide a, a lot of services to aunts and uncles and of course my mom and dad. I think it's a little bit of the pain in the butt to turn 2FA on for someone who's not able to manage it. So as an example of this, like I set up backup codes, right? Which is something that allows me to get into my account, even if I don't have a device or can't get on it via my cell phone. That's important because if I lose access to my cell phone number for whatever reason, then I need to still be able to get into that account. So, for example, I travel, uh, they're actually memorized, but three of those numbers uh, uh, I have in my head so that if I'm overseas, I can go in and get to that account if I lose access to my phone. Now, it's less and less likely that I lose access to my phone because uh, T-Mobile works everywhere and I have access always or I'll buy a SIM card. But I think it's an interesting what if, because I could see a scenario where some people might get tragically locked out of their accounts. You know, and and not everybody has a phone. I mean, at school, uh, we've got kids, you know, a number, we start, we start email accounts at fifth grade. They get the Google account when they, you know, join the school. But um, it's not something I foresee us requiring our students to do. Right. But back in 2017, we started, you know, requiring our faculty to. And I think we saw the writing on the wall that, you know, one of the most important ways you can increase your security is by using another factor of authentication. So I think it's good to continue moving in that direction. Um, but I think Google is in and I think the article references this is going to, you know, definitely Recognize that not everybody's going to be able to do that, and there's going to be some other options. But if it's the kind of thing where it's a opt out instead of opt in, you know that's that's moving towards more normalization of of the two factor authentication. So that yep. is it puts a requirement on on developers. I don't know if I mentioned this in the show, but oh, a month or so ago, I uh, was asked by some folks who had seen my TEDx talk, which is still not published. I hope it's going to hopefully come out here soon, but my, uh, TEDx UCO, which was on technology fear therapy. And it was a lot about passwords and how you can help others in your life to become more secure and not become the victims of identity theft. And anyway, there were some folks that were there and they asked to get with me and, and get some help. We learned that if you try to turn two factor on with Cox, you can turn that on here, at least in central Oklahoma, but they don't have a system that's compatible with Apple mail and, and you have to create a one-time password for, for apps oh. like that. And so anyway, that was, that was a pain. And it was like, what are you serious? So these kinds of requirements, if they get put into place can have an impact on the kinds of applications that people can use depending upon their service, right? There's still plenty of people using Hotmail. There's lots of folks around here using their Cox email as their primary. They never, you know, switch to a Gmail or something else. So I think it is a favorable um, move, much like we've talked about on the show, how Apple now notifies you if you have passwords saved in your iCloud that were in a data breach, you know, that has affected family members, one of our daughters, my wife, you know, what, what's this? And I'm like, yeah, we need, you need to go through those passwords. You need to audit those. So maybe we need to come up with a clever name for that, Jason, for the holidays to say it's, yeah. time. and I don't think password auditing party will probably be the, no, the catchy no, phrase. That's uh, going to get lots of people festive, to do it. Yeah. A festive, uh, uh, yeah. password changing party. But the, you know, sometimes holidays for me can be time to, you know, audit things and update things and, and whatever. And, and uh, so that's a, another reminder that we sometimes say from, you know, time to time on the show, if you have not gone through your passwords and audited them so that you've eliminated, you know, breached passwords and 
hopefully duplicated passwords and made them more secure by picking unique, long, and complicated passwords then. Guess what? We all have homework, and we need to finally get that done. Yep, absolutely. All right, what else for from the Googles? Uh, let's see here. Oh, um, this is uh, I've seen this article in a couple different ways. This is from Tech Radar on the first of November. Um, Chromebook sales are plummeting ahead of, of Black Friday, and the point of this, in part, is uh, talk about like internationally the the need or purchases of Chromebooks have gone down dramatically, and I think part of that is a pretty serious saturation in the market. I think districts that wanted to buy uh, uh, Chromebooks for students have purchased them by now. I would also say, too, that parents that maybe want to buy Chromebooks in order to support learning at home, uh, they have already purchased, and I think the market is probably fairly saturated. But um, that's just something to be aware of. And I've also seen some pretty awesome, if you're into the, the uh, kind of middle, lower-end Chromebook market, uh, there are great sales going on right now in anticipation of Black Friday. You can get a pretty decent Chromebook for about 100 bucks. I wonder if we want to do another, uh, you know, tech shopping cart yeah. or, you good know, question. yeah, I was just looking at, I think it was uh, the Verge has a good holiday shopping guide and those kind of things that are out. So maybe we can do that um, in early, this maybe early, early in December, or shortly after Thanksgiving, something like that. Okay. And let's see. Um... Let's just change my mind. Is that you want your mind changed, or was that the Android Authority? No, that was the Android Authority that wanted its mind changed. It's a really interesting article. It argues that detachable Chromebooks are better than iPads. And um, I am an owner of both. I am a user of both. And what I would say is that uh, he's right, but my opinion's a little different than that. Um, If on a tablet, you're going to spend most of your time in a browser you should get a Chromebook tablet because the browsing experience is so good on uh, Chromebooks in comparison to the iPad browser experience, which is still pretty not great. Um, So if you spend more of your time on a tablet on the web, then by all means, get a a Chromebook tablet. If you spend more time in apps, then get an iPad because the iPad app experience is a lot better and not necessarily a lot better than an Android tablet it's better than a Chromebook tablet because uh, Android apps still aren't great on Chromebooks yet. So just a you know, friendly reminder that I'm a huge Chromebook nerd, even though I've gone back to the Apple world. And it was super interesting last year when we had iPads for our sixth grade, you know, seeing where there were places that folks floundered and were confused. And some of that had to do with, you know, whether the Google apps had been installed and people were trying to run those or whether they were trying to do it in Safari and when they were prompted and just, you know, we uh, would, if if you have iPads at school and you haven't done professional development around that. I mean, one of the things that Google Classroom is great on the iPad in the app is using the stylus and being able to grab a PDF and annotate yep. it right away. You cannot, you cannot do that in a, in a browser version, but um, I would be interested and maybe this is something we can look up or somebody can tweet at us with some of these numbers, but you know, how many schools are doing one-to-ones now with iPads? I don't know. Um, you know, that continues, has been for quite a while, the Apple's push to say, this is the the device that we really think you should have if you're doing one-to-one in school. Um, there's plenty of, of schools that still have laptops and, and, and push those. But anyway, I just, especially with the pandemic and how many, you know, schools uh, had to, had to expand or go ahead and implement, you know, one-to-one learning, um, lots and lots of Chromebooks sold. And I know that, you know, there are lots of iPads and, and MacBook Airs and other other kinds of devices. PC sold as well. But um, I'm not sure who has those kinds of good statistics about trying to, you know, have the pulse of yeah. K- K-12 nationwide, and, you know, just in the United States, if not globally. We certainly have huge numbers of, uh, you know, Google Classroom users and things like that that Google, you know, reports in, in their, you know, keynotes and education events and things like that. So I have not ever used a detachable uh, Chrome keyboard. Um, we've got the yogas where you know, they'll fold over and, and we've got right. kids shooting video and there's both a world facing and a, and a self facing camera. And I think they've, they've been okay. Um, but yeah, I think uh, 
the the iPad is still just a fantastic experience. And I just, I really don't want to curl up with a laptop at night. You know, I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not going to be, you know, and even on the couch or whatever, when I'm, when I'm reading something, yeah. um, a lot better to have the, the iPad. Or, factor is huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I'll save these other two software ones for next time. So, okay. Uh, let's talk about connectivity. There was a, uh, little legislation that passed here recently. Uh, so this is Ars Technica from November the 8th. Biden's historic $65 billion broadband plan is approved by Congress. Um, connectivity is something we talk about on the show from time to time. And there wasn't a mention of E-rate in this at all. This is really apparently going to be consumer focused. Um, but there's going to be some expansions of programs, this emergency uh, broadband benefit program. They were going to try to be paying uh, subsidies that were going to be $50, but they ended up reducing that to $30 a month. Uh, so depending upon your situation and your student situation, um, they may be able to get that kind of regular monthly stipend to offset the cost of home broadband. Um, they're expanding the Department of Agriculture's Rural Utilities Service, um, giving more money to tribal broadband connectivity. And it says a billion dollars for middle middle mile network grants and then other kinds of broadband projects. So that definitely makes me think of Montana and stories when I've gone up there before in the summer about yep. uh, last mile, you know, installations and the challenges. Um, so hopefully this will be uh, a good thing for big sky country because, you know, the longer your distances are and the more expensive your last mile is, the more, you know, a government subsidy to get those kind of things put in place is. But I don't know that they've changed the definitions in terms of broadband. I think that they've got in here. Well, OK, they're going to be having this broadband map expanded and the definition. So they were pushing to uh, prioritize networks that had symmetric 100 meg up and down. And so AT&T and other providers, you know, lobbied, no, we don't want that. And so the standard that they've adopted is a non-symmetrical 100 megs down, 20 megs up. Um, but the FCC is being charged in this to expand their broadband map and, you know, promoting equity and greater access, all that kind of stuff for, you know, Internet connectivity. It sounds like good news. These also can be you know, boondoggles for companies and things. And we've had situations in Oklahoma where they've been these wonderful fiber networks that were built out and then, you know, just sold. And I don't know, I think the, the impact to the community was probably far less than it could be. But anyway, hopefully this is going to have some yep. positive impact um, in our rural communities. Yep, absolutely. And I is, as I, it's been pointed out to me several times over in Montana that the pandemic did very much highlight uh how truly um, uh, disconnected a lot of areas are in my state. Yeah. What do you all require students to have as far as their connectivity to be in the digital academy? Do you we have a requirement? vaguely define it as broadband. Um, the the good news is, is that we, we haven't had any folks with dial-up internet try attempt the courses since 2010 or 11, I think was the last time we, we had heard of that. So that was obviously uh, uh, interesting to work around. Um, I generally say that uh, unless you are uh, setting up any kind of live anything, that the 10 down per person working concurrently in your home is probably going to be enough. I, I, I think that, that closer to 50 per person is better, but, um, you know, just not necessarily available in a lot of areas. Yep. All right. My dogs are tracking mud in the house, I think, the hazards of rain happening oh she tore up a pillow oh there's a there's a row torn row. oh there's a torn up pumpkin pillow oh no <laughs> breaking news breaking news destruction in the fire <laughs> living room the puppy has been on a rampage she is not to be trusted okay um let's see this one well i don't know i i put this one on and now now that i thought about it maybe this isn't um as relevant as far as school technology ce pro um, said on October 25th that Google has renamed the smart home initiative officially Google home. So uh, we do talk about our smart devices and whether we are fans of Madam A or uh, Google home. And so um, this is an attempt by 
Google, I guess, to just continue to develop their home infrastructure. I thought it, probably their whole system was called Google Home. Um, so anyway, have, have, are you all doing any holiday changes with respect to your smart speakers and your smart house, Jason? No, we're, we're basically a, an Amazon home. There is a, a we, we have two speakers in the, the dining room because uh, they, the, you know, we've, we've worked with both, but we tend to go to, to Madam A over uh, other alternatives. So, and is that because the devices were less expensive as you were getting them or how did, how did you end up becoming yeah. Madam A? Um, less expensive. And I also felt like they were more functional that, uh, it was easier to get things installed on their like apps, uh, that, you know, that would have different commands available than it was with, uh, the Google home. Okay. But perfectly, perfectly good enough though. I will say. Yeah. You want to pick up the Microsoft article or, or should I dare yeah. to these media literacy ones? We'll Let me go this. ahead. I, okay. and, and I'll admit, I, you know, I want to play with one of these devices. It's highly unlikely that one will end up in my hands, but I want to talk about it anyway. So once again, Microsoft is looking for a Chromebook killer and they think, uh, or at least this is the first time I've seen any sort of positive review to suggest that they may have stumbled onto it. The Verge reported on November 9th that there is now the Surface Laptop SE, its first true Chromebook competitor. And uh, it's only available to schools and students, so this is not going to be in the common market. And as I'm sure you, you, you're not surprised, for $250, you're going to get a big hunk of plastic uh, as as uh, a part of this deal. Um, and that would be just as true in the Chromebook world than, than it is in the Microsoft world. Um, it comes with Windows 11 SE, so it's that scaled back piece again, uh, so that you can't just install any old apps. They have to come through the Microsoft App Store, uh, which is a downfall. And the current ones available are really low resolution screens. Uh, uh, 720p is the, the measurement there. And, that's just such a low end device, right? Like, the reason why I'm mentioning how low end it is is because, uh, it's still going to have Windows installed on it. And I'm just not convinced. It, you know, the, the browser now is basically basically the same. The Edge browser is really high-quality browser. I like it. I have it installed. I use it frequently. It's built on top of Chrome. But you still probably have a lot of Windows cruft there that's going to make this feel pretty slow when you have, you know, older three- or four-year-old processors um, the power of the Chromebook, in my humble opinion, is that it's got such low overhead plus the browser, right? So in general, it's just a much a faster experience on lesser hardware. So we'll see. And I look forward to reviews. Uh, uh, Windows 11 uh, is the uh, operating system installed on a Surface Laptop SE, and maybe it's better with lower-end hardware. You know, this article made me think of OLPC, the one laptop per child uh, program. And so I have actually just Googled a couple articles. There's one, it's unfortunately a paywall behind technology review. Um, this is from October 27th. Laptops alone can't bridge the digital divide. Um, and then there's a, an April, this is from 2018 article from the verge. OLPC's hundred dollar laptop was going to change the world. Then it all went wrong. Um, probably some really important articles to consider, um, you know, obviously tech companies are always wanting to sell more devices and, you know, lots of enthusiasm around one-to-one uh, initiatives. But uh, at one point I was going to write my dissertation on, you know, one-to-one initiatives. But anyway, sort of makes you think about that and what happened there, you know. It was, that was one of my first, I think that was my first time to NCCE um, was when I ended up um, trying to think of, of, of his name. Now he's now retired. Uh, Mark, um, mm, a, a long time edgy blogger and, and photographer, yeah. but anyway, he, um, had, had an OLPC and I don't know, at some point we thought, you know, these very inexpensive devices, we're going to, we're going to revolutionize stuff. So I would predict if you are a Microsoft shop and you absolutely love Microsoft, then perhaps this is going to be exciting to you, but I don't honestly, though, think the limitation of the App Store is that big of a deal for students. I mean, that's how we have our Chromebooks deployed now is students can only download things from the Play Store that the IT department has approved. And I would kind of think that might be common just in terms of the ways that IT departments tend to like to 
to lock things down and stuff. So, again, good to see Microsoft innovating, and it would be interesting to lay hands on that. Are you going to get to go to a face-to-face conference, Jason, where a vendor may have something like that in their in their booth? Uh, yes, I'm. I'm. I'm planning on unless things uh, go awry, uh, COVID-wise, in the next two months. I think I will travel to a conference in February. Yeah, well, that's those are the kind of things that what you know among many things that conferences are great for is to actually be able to put hands on hardware and yep. see things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. Yep. Well, let me do these um, media literacy articles quickly, although sure. these are very much touching on some political issues. Um, I'll do the the second one first. So. Uh, popular information, which I'd never heard of before. Uh, it's actually a, a newsletter on uh, Substack um, with thousands of, of subscribers on November 8th reported that right-wing operatives deploy massive network of fake local news sites to weaponize critical race theory. Um, I also included in the show notes and I'll include this uh, in our, our links as well, uh, the lateral read. So there's a Wikipedia article for popular information and you can get some more uh, information about the uh, the guy who writes this newsletter. Um, we've talked on the show before about this, that, you know, there's a lot of money in politics and some of that money is actually purchasing websites that are attempting, to, they're pretending to be local news sites and then are able to flood the channel with whatever kinds of articles they want, um, supporting somebody, you know, tearing somebody down. Um, and it just, this is a, a very clear example of the polluted media landscape, the polluted information landscape that we live in. Um, and then the other article I've got here from Ars Technica yesterday on November 9th is that 38% of U.S. adults believe that the government is faking the COVID-19 death toll. And what the the research shows here is that it's really tied to the news uh, entities that the that that people follow the most, and so Newsmax, One American News, and Fox News are the ones that um, you know correlate with COVID nineteen uh, re- reporting about you know this this uh, exaggeration of COVID nineteen deaths and you know this this alignment with the the echo chamber that you live in you know correlates to the to the beliefs that you have. Um, I don't have any articles in here talking about the election in 2024 and the kinds of things that await us. But I just I kind of just think it's it's just going to be such a mess. Um, so. I don't know if you have anything to say to that, but it's 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 definitely important to recognize that we need to be encouraging media literacy. We need to be encouraging yep. people to explore, uh, you know, the sources of of the sites that they have. But when you have, you know, especially adults in such, you know, polarized and, and uh, opposite uh, segments of the market, so to speak, um, I'm not sure how those 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 bridges and divides become, bri- you know, become bridged and and become overcome. So that's a enduring challenge that we have, not just as educators, but probably as a society. If you've got the answer to that. You can tweet that to Jason and I. We'd love to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do right away. All right. Any other articles you would like to pick up tonight, sir? Nope. I think I'm good for this week. All right. What do you got for us for a Geek of the Week? Well, um, a great uh, uh, addition to the Google Culture and Blog. Or I'm sorry, Culture and um, uh, Culture. I've the Google Culture. Arts and Culture. Arts and Culture. Thank you. Uh, it's called Pet Portraits. And you may remember a couple years back, they did a thing where you took a selfie and it matched you up with an art uh, piece in, in, in the vast digital collection at Google Arts and Culture. Well, now you can do it with your pets. So take a picture of your dog and it will find um, a piece of art uh, in its digital collection that looks like your dog. And I only did it once and it was just quickly, uh, I downloaded the app uh, at lunch today and it was pretty amusing. So uh, certainly worth your, your time and delight. All right. And I just have one. It's YouTube copyright school. Yes, indeed folks. You can go to YouTube copyright school by watching a four and a half minute video that I think has like 11 million views. Um, I actually got my first official YouTube channel strike uh, this last week because I played a video during a recorded a class that I was teaching on Sunday and 
the uh, the owner of that did not like that, and they have not responded to my emails about that. the The interesting thing about this is, uh, number one, when you have a strike, and maybe this is I don't know if this is of every type, but it's a lot, lot like going to defensive driving school, where you know you can <laughs> go and then it'll be taken off your record. So by by literally watching this four and a half minute video, which is actually pretty childlike, and I think oriented much more to younger developers than it would be adults. And it literally basically says, make your own content. Don't, you know, don't copy anybody else's stuff. Just make your own stuff. Uh, there's a four question quiz. And, and I've got a hundred percent on that. Now that I've done that in three months, this copyright strike will go off of my channel. And for those of you not familiar with copyright strikes, if you get three, then you are canceled and all of the, that may not be the term Google wants to use, but you are, um, you know, you're, you lose access to all of your videos, your channels, you, you lose everything. So anyway, um, your Geek of the Week is certainly a lot more fun than mine. But <laughs> it is, I think, also good for us as educators to be publishing content on YouTube, learning about how the platform works. Uh, video is such an important communication medium. So my learning journey continues with YouTube. And thankfully, I will hopefully not have another strike. So yep, you're here. All right. Where can folks find you when you're not here uh, enlightening us uh, on the world of Googles and other things? Twitter's a place to find me, Tech Savvy Teach. And you, sir? I am uh, westfryer.com. I've done a bunch of updates to my website since I am act- actively job hunting. So, But I'm on Twitter at WFryer. So we would like to thank everyone for uh, coming to attend. If you are listening to us late uh, after the fact, as I think most people probably do, um, Please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We do always have a link to a survey that you can take on our on our show notes, but you can find all those at edtechsr.com where we've got 32 kilobit audio versions as well as smaller, approximately 100 meg video versions. But you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Twitter at edtechsr is really the best place to find out anything updating about the show. Uh, but you can follow us on Facebook. You can additionally find us anywhere. Podcasts are basically curated today. So thanks to Jason for joining us. We encourage you to join us next week live if you can. And until next time, stay stabby, stay safe, and be thinking about what we need to call that little holiday party of auditing your passwords. Surely there's some way to make that sound really exciting. But maybe not. (laughs) Have a good night, everybody. Good night.